This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice Podcast, a bi-weekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. Once again, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. In today's session, we'll be focusing on guideline recommendations for combination therapy, including how and when to intensify to insulin-based regimens. Later on, we'll be speaking to Dr. Vanita Aroda for a discussion of her clinical experience of advancing to combination therapies. As always, please do feel free to skip ahead to the expert interview if you're already familiar with this therapy area. And in addition, all references we discuss are available in the episode description. When advancing a patient to injectable therapy, one of the first considerations is what to do with oral medications. Historically, guidance has been to simplify treatment by discontinuing as many agents as possible. Modern guidelines, however, advise that oral agents should be continued unless otherwise contraindicated. According to EASD ADA guidelines, metformin and SGLT2 inhibitors may be continued as normal. DPP-4 inhibitors can be used alongside insulin but must be discontinued alongside a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Thiazolidine dienes and sulfonylureas can also increase the risk of adverse events when mixed with insulin. As such, the guidelines advise that the agent should either be discontinued or continued at a reduced dose. Similarly, sulfonylureas should be discontinued altogether when advancing to prandial insulin. In terms of first-line injectable therapy, ADA EASD guidelines recommend considering a GLP-1 receptor agonist to all patients prior to initiating insulin. However, there are some instances where it may make sense to jump straight to insulin. The guidelines recommend considering insulin as a first injectable if the patient has a very high HbA1c level of over 97 millimoles per mole, if type 1 diabetes is a possibility, or if the patient is showing evidence of catabolism. Symptoms of catabolism include weight loss, polyuria and polydipsia. Guidelines recommend reviewing patients every three to six months to avoid clinical inertia. If, after this time frame, HbA1c cannot be controlled on their current regimen, including a GLP-1 receptor agonist, or where one has been attempted and not tolerated, guidelines recommend that the next step is to initiate basal insulin. When initiating insulin, start at 10 units a day and then titrate upwards using a patient's self-directed algorithm or an evidence-based titration algorithm. We will discuss suitable algorithms and titration recommendations in an upcoming episode. When advancing to basal insulins, guidelines note that a fixed ratio combination of GLP-1 receptor agonist and basal insulin may suit patients in order to reduce the total number of daily injections and improve adherence. If the patient's HbA1c is still not at target despite a maximally tolerated dose of basal insulin, then guidelines advise the addition of one injection of prandial insulin before the largest meal. Initiation should be at four insulin units, or 10% of the basal dose, then titrated with a stepwise addition of prandial insulin every three months, as this is associated with lower risk of hyperglycemia and increased patient satisfaction when compared with the immediate introduction of a full basal bolus regime. It's also important to note that guidelines do not recommend pre-mixed insulin. Although noting that these regimens helped improve adherence for some patients, guidelines generally cannot recommend pre-mixed insulins due to their increased risk of hyperglycemia. Finally, if the patient's HbA1c still doesn't improve, then the guidelines recommend reviewing the ongoing need for basal bolus and considering additional DESMAS. As a reminder, DESMAS stands for Diabetes Self-Management Education and Support. 
Also, the entire algorithm within the guidelines should be used in conjunction with the decision cycle for patient-centered glycemic control. If you'd like to hear more about this topic, please do listen to or revisit our patient empowerment episode. So while the guidelines provide a lot of direction on which class of drug to use and in which sequence, little guidance is provided on decisions within classes or which patient self-directed titration algorithms are preferred. Today we're joined by Dr. Vanita Aroda from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Massachusetts to provide further guidance on clinical decision-making in the real world. So, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Aroda. We've discussed advancing a patient from GLP-1 receptor agonists onto basal insulin therapy and whether to retain their current regimen or switch to a fixed-ratio combination. Are there special considerations you make when deciding which option may be best for each patient? And are there any tips you can offer to our listeners? Thank you, James. What a great question. It is always good to revisit our goals in treatment of our patients with diabetes. As summarized in the recent ADA and EASD consensus, our overarching goals are to prevent complications. And we know that good glycemic control is fundamental to this goal and to optimize quality of life for our patients. And for this, patient-centered factors are important to understand. So for a patient who is already on a GLP-1 receptor agonist and presumably on oral therapy as well, correct? Yes, that is definitely the case. Okay. Who needs further treatment intensification after a GLP-1 receptor agonist, addition of basal insulin is absolutely a reasonable option. Multiple studies have been done, now spanning a decade, showing that the combination of a GLP-1 receptor agonist and basal insulin provides a complementary effect on blood glucose profiles. Uh, In this case, a GLP-1 receptor agonist provides both fasting and postprandial glucose lowering effect with the different GLP-1 receptor agonists having slightly different profiles. And the basal insulin provides for basal or fasting glucose regulation at a lower dose than what would have been required without the GLP-1 receptor agonist on board. With that lower dose of insulin required with the GLP-1 receptor agonist on board, there's also a lower risk of hypoglycemia and a lower risk of weight gain, which are potential side effects of insulin therapy. So here we have from an efficacy side, a good complementary effect of the two GLP-1 receptor agonists and insulin, and from a side effect uh, side, a mitigation of the side effect profiles of both of those. Excellent. Great points, Dr. Aroda. So looking more specifically, how would you suggest incorporating basal insulin into this regimen? So on a practical level, there are two approaches at this point for then incorporating basal insulin into a regimen of a patient who is already on a GLP-1 receptor agonist. One is to simply add a daily dose of basal insulin. This can be in the form of a basal insulin analog, such as glargine, detamir, degladec, or NPH insulin at the typical starting doses of around 10 units a day or a weight-based dose of 0.1 to 0.2 units per kilogram per day. Another possibility is to advance to what's called a fixed-ratio combination therapy, and this is the combination of basal insulin and GLP-1 receptor agonist therapy within a single injection. And there are two fixed-ratio combinations that have been studied and approved for use in a patient like you've described. Uh, They are IDEG-Lyra, which is a combination of basal insulin analog degladec with the GLP-1 receptor agonist liraglutide, and IGLAR-LIXI, which is the combination of basal insulin glargine with the GLP-1 receptor agonist lixisamitide. So either approach would work, and that would be either addition of basal insulin as a daily injection or advancing to a fixed ratio combination therapy that has 
the combination of basal insulin with the GLP-1 receptor agonist. Excellent. Thank you for such a detailed response. So, moving on specifically to adding basal insulin. When initiating basal insulin, guidelines recommend patients use self-directed algorithms or an evidence-based titration algorithm to titrate their insulin dose upwards. Do you have any recommendations of some of these that our patients may find useful? Another great question, James. And for this, I think of it in three steps, and that is how to start, how to titrate, and when to stop. And so let's go over that in a little bit more detail. Uh, so pearl number one, realize that the starting dose is just that. It's the starting dose, meaning it's not where the patient will end up. It's where, where they are starting from. And titration is a must. And we need to realize that individualized titration to match the needs of the individual patient is feasible and doable with the uh, tools that we currently have available. So number one, the starting dose is just that, a starting dose. So number two, how do we titrate? There are several titration approaches that have been used in the clinical trials and um, as well as in clinical practice. And the main thing is to have a plan for titration and to educate and empower patients on that titration algorithm. One algorithm used that has uh, been shown to be very uh, patient-friendly and physician-friendly is called the INSIGHT algorithm, which originated in Canada. And this really encourages patient-directed titration. The recommendation is to increase basal insulin by one unit every day for each day the patient is above the fasting goal. Let's say, for example, the fasting goal is to be less than 100, then every day that the patient is above 100, they will increase their units of insulin by one unit. Other algorithms that have been tried and true in the clinical trial programs have been to advance insulin by two units around every three to four days as needed until the fasting goals are reached. But the key is really to educate and empower self-titration. So that's for titration. Now, the third pearl is to know when to stop and to know when to advise the patient to check back in with you. Because if patients continue to titrate the insulin upwards without any defined limit or any defined cap, they may actually be at risk of what's called over-basalization. In other words, too much basal insulin when their physiology might dictate the need for another therapy. So what are some good benchmarks to know when to stop titrating and when to check back in and when to reassess, I break it down into, again, three categories. So first of all, when a patient reaches around 0.5 units per kilogram of basal insulin, we know that going above that leads to diminishing returns on efficacy and increases the risk of hypoglycemia. So that's my first uh, kind of clinical benchmark for rule of thumb as to when to reassess. Second, and this is based on the clinical studies when we look at the combination of GLP-1 receptor agonist and insulin therapy, we see that the end mean dose of insulin is typically in that 30 to 40 unit range. So when a patient reaches that 30 to 40 unit range, I think is a good point to reassess and to see what the physiologic needs are. And then third, as a clinical pearl or rule of thumb, is when there is a widening gap between the bedtime glucose and the morning blood glucose. This then suggests a need for other therapies, such as prandial therapy, instead of just greater basal insulin titration. And again, a rule of thumb is when you start seeing that gap widen to above 50 milligrams per deciliter, it's a hint to start reassessing the therapy to see what other therapies are needed. So that's the lowdown, knowing how to start and that the starting dose is simply just that, a starting dose, rules to titrate to empower and educate patients on self-titration, and having been benchmarks as to when to stop and reassess basal insulin titration. 
I hope that was helpful, James. Indeed it was. And this neatly ties into our last question for this session. So when the patient needs to advance further, such as adding prandial insulin or exploring other options, what options would you consider at this point? And would these require any amendments to their treatment regimen to prevent polypharmacy? Great question and an increasingly important question in the current times when we look at the number of therapies that we have available and the number of therapies that our patients are on. So so first and foremost, it is important to look at the patient's regimen and make sure that it is a smart regimen, meaning a regimen that's tailored to the patient's physiology and the patient's risk factors and patient-centered factors. So for the question that you're asking about, a patient who's on oral therapy and basal insulin, who may or may not be on a GLP-1 receptor agonist, what are other therapies for intensification, such as prandial insulin? So if the patient is on basal insulin and not yet on a GLP-1 receptor agonist, and one is considering further treatment intensification, the studies have also been done showing that the comparison of intensifying to incorporation of a GLP-1 receptor agonist versus intensification to adding prandial therapy, there is definite advantage or benefit with the GLP-1 receptor agonist approach in terms of minimizing risk of hypoglycemia, as well as minimizing risk of weight gain and minimizing the complexity associated with prandial insulin therapy. Now, for a patient who's already on GLP-1 receptor agonist and basal insulin therapy who needs treatment intensification, adding prandial insulin is an option and usually doesn't require any downward adjustment of the basal insulin or the other agents. However, prandial insulin does add another layer of complexity for the patient, and at that point, it is really good to set up a separate education appointment to make sure that the patient understands the, the titration regimen and approaches to prandial insulin therapy. At that point, it is also really recommended to relook at the possible non-insulin agents and to see whether those have been optimized and when possible to de-intensify therapy or to simplify the therapy for the patient. So for example, if the patient is a good candidate metformin, are they optimized on their metformin therapy? Are there other non-insulin classes that they might benefit from? Because although prandial insulin is effective, it does add another layer of complexity. I hope that's helpful to talk through. It was. Thank you so much for all your time today, Dr. Aroda. Thank you so much, James. Have a good day. This brings us to the end of today's time. To summarize, when advancing your patient onto injectable therapies, your first step should be to consider the oral medication the patient is on and take appropriate action. Then look to add a GLP-1 receptor agonist to the patient's treatment plan, then basal insulin, then prandial insulin if HbA1c levels are still not under control after three to six months of every new therapy. As always, the patient-centered approach should be followed and education should be offered at every change in therapeutic. If you'd like to hear more from us on the latest developments in diabetes, you can subscribe to the podcast across all major apps. You can also stream individual episodes from our website, knowledgeinpractice.eu, where you can also access all our free accredited CME content. If you found this episode useful, please leave us a review or tweet us at DKI Practice. Join us again in another two weeks for a discussion of glucose monitors and how to discuss introducing these with your patients. Please do tweet us at DKI Practice if you have any questions, and we look forward to podcasting with you again soon.